This podcast is supported by Siemens, your partner for industrial-grade AI. Hi there. Welcome to a new episode of the Industrial NI podcast. My name is Peter Seberg, and my guest today is Marcus Borg. He is principal researcher at CodeScene, and Marcus and I are going to talk about requirements engineering for AI. Hello, Marcus. Hello. Thanks for having me. Please introduce yourself to our listeners. Let us know what you do at CodeScene and maybe elsewhere as well. So I've got a PhD in software engineering from Lund University, Sweden. I think that's a good starting point here. I'm also working 20% as an adjunct lecturer at the Department of Computer Science with Lund University. And this is a podcast about industrial AI, right? Exactly. Yeah, I did my homework. <laughs> uh, so my hands-on practical experiences related to this domain is an internship at Ford Motor Company in Cologne, Germany. Oh, right. That was actually my first engineering kind of workplace. And then I worked for three years at ABB in Malmö, Sweden, uh, with process automation. So this is my industrial background, I would say. Then I returned to the university to pursue a PhD, and I've been working with different flavors of the software industry since then. But it surely overlaps with the industrial AI. I worked for seven years at the state-owned institute, RICE, Research Institutes of Sweden. It's somewhat mm -hmm. similar to the Fraunhofer Institute in Germany, okay. which I guess your listeners, some of your listeners know about at least. Some of them, yeah. yeah. Running projects to bridge academic research and industry practice. Very wide variety of projects and very fun. And my research has always been at this intersection of software engineering and applied AI And related to AI and requirements, I've mostly been working with the automotive industry and the machine learning-based perception systems. And yeah, now I just joined CodeScene last month as a principal researcher. So this is new to drive research on software engineering intelligence, discovering new ways to develop better software faster. These would be the three words to describe it. Mm -hmm. And again, this is doing research at the intersection of, of software engineering and AI And that goes in both directions. So with CodeScene, I do AI to improve software engineering. Mm -hmm. And with uh, Lund University, I focus on adapting software engineering methods and practices for the AI era. And this is what we're going to talk about today, I believe. Right. Sounds like there's more than enough material for talking about requirements engineering for AI. Interesting, you say you did an internship with Ford in Cologne. I did visit that factory while I was with German, what is that organization for the machine builders, VDMA. And I think they had a day or an afternoon there looking at how manufacturing works. So you mm -hmm. were involved i understand in writing the ieee software issue on ai engineering realizing the potential of ai is what it says what is that all about so we need some additional background here then well, please do please do uh, yeah so i'm a department editor for requirements in the magazine ieee mm -hmm. software so this is a magazine it's an industry leaning magazine i would say that seeks to publish the latest and greatest in software technology by academics and thought leaders in the industry. This means I'm responsible for writing or inviting someone else to write a bi-monthly column on a timely topic related to requirements. And each issue of IEEE software has a particular theme. And for the November-December issue 2022, and that's the current issue, the theme is AI engineering. Right. And AI engineering, it's a new name for a discipline concerned with uh, all aspects of development and evolution of AI systems. So systems that somehow involve AI components, uh, typically machine learning components. Yeah, the column we're going to discuss today, it's uh, a piece in this uh, issue of uh, IEEE software, and it's a collaboration between Siemens Digital Industries, RISE, and the University of Cologne. We uh, primarily did an interview study with AI stakeholders within Siemens, And we discussed the topic of requirements engineering for AI quite extensively. So Boris Scharinger from Siemens Digital Industries is actually the, the lead author of this column uh, we mm -hmm. talked about today. With uh, support from me and uh, Professor Andreas Vogelsang, University of Cologne, and uh, Dr. Thomas Olsson with RICE. 
So these are the people involved. Very good. So let's start talking about, you mentioned already AI engineering as a new terminology. Mm -hmm. Very happy to hear that because I, well, not that I hadn't heard about it, but there you go. So why don't you start explaining us what in more in general, one step higher up, I guess, what requirements engineering is, has been about. Yes, that's a good start, of course. So I like to describe requirements engineering as structured expectation management or needs management, maybe taking the end user's perspective. And the term, it was coined in the 1960s. So it's been around for a while. From the late 90s, it turned into an academic discipline. So there are now uh, conferences and workshops on this topic and has been around for a long time with a very strong representation in Germany, I would say also. Germany has always been a leading country here. And I think the essence of requirements engineering, I think it resonates very well with the quality oriented focus of German engineering. Mm -hmm. There are different definitions of requirements engineering, but a simple and short one that you often come across is the process of defining, documenting and maintaining requirements. This is particularly recognized then in software engineering and systems engineering. Mm -hmm. So it might sound a bit old-fashioned, and I don't like that. <laughs> I mean, nowadays it sounds oh, really? like, yeah, you do all the planning first, and then you... I mean, <laughs> no, I must stress that requirements engineering doesn't at all mean that you work oh. in a multiple model. I mean, that's... I teach in this also at the university, and I have a hard time making it sound interesting. So I try to, <laughs> I mean, the word itself, requirements, doesn't maybe sound so positive. Oh, uh, uh, well, I'm not sure why you say that, but we can come to that at some point. Uh -huh. in time. That's interesting. But I, I hear you say, is this discussion we have all the time here in Europe, more strongly, maybe even so in Germany, where the young generation that has had the option or, I mean, all of us seeing where, you know, many, let's say, typically American companies, software companies, you know, if that's what you mean, you know, bring a product to market and, you know, here it is on the internet, try it out. And mm -hmm, you know, we get mm -hmm. five times a day a new update, <laughs> which I hear you say maybe have not been doing so strongly requirements engineering on the yeah, other hand the typical german approach of say oh we need so long we first do this and then the young generation says oh we're losing we're losing you know we see all these companies that's not necessarily true by the way right <laughs> uh, but if that's what you mean with that it sounds all that's what well, for me it, it doesn't sound all at all but there you go uh, that's good that's good <laughs> but i always end up in this kind of defensive mode when i bring forward the topic because i mean it's oh, wow. it doesn't make Maybe resonate with the fail-fast generation, as, as you okay. kind of implied. But there are certainly agile requirements engineering as well. I mean, when you integrate various activities in the rest of the development and iterate and iterate and iterate. But the important thing is to really maintain this end-user perspective. I think that's so important. Very good. So at least I keep this in the end of my brain and maybe bring it up at the end or somewhere. So what is the main issue you are addressing here in this article or in general requirements engineering for AI and maybe already as well you know is there a main outcome before we then get to the details well the starting point of the column that we propose presented here i mean that's that ai we know it's everywhere and it promises many lucrative solutions and of course ai it is amazing but it's not magic it's a technology that allows us to increase the levels of automation for tasks that previously were very difficult to to tackle using the old-fashioned hard-coded source code instructions. For certain types of problems, we know that it's way more feasible to collect massive amounts of data and help the machine then to find useful patterns. But, I mean, the issue, so it, it's opinionated, of course, it's a column, it's not a, a typical research article. It is that we haven't seen yet this steady stream of success stories from industrial AI. It turns out that it's not so easy to profit on AI. Uh, there is a business challenge to it. It's it's hard to reach what we refer to in our work as commercial scalability to make money, if you will, get that return mm. on investment. So this would be the, the issue then. Then our position here with this piece is that Ari is in a very good position. Ari, as in requirements engineering, is in a very good position to catalyze the maturing process of industrial AI and help with the adoption. 
Exactly. So you mentioned the AI adoption and manufacturing process is to be fairly low. And you talk about death by proof of concepts mm -hmm. as a widely occurring phenomenon. I must say that as I was involved in actually doing projects, that was exactly not the death piece, but we were always doing first the proof of concept as well. So I'm now very much interested in, well, number one, and what do you base this very idea on that death by proof of concept is a widely occurring phenomenon. It's not our term. We cannot take credit for the, okay. uh, for the term. It's, it's something you see among venture capitalists, for example. Oh, right. You they say that. Mm -hmm. proof of concept. Yeah, but uh, so are they suggesting that we shouldn't be doing any proof of concepts anymore? No. We should just immediately no. start and doing, because I'm teaching all the time, and maybe I'm going to do that differently after this talk, but I'm saying all the time, start small. Yes, yeah, start with a proof of concept. Mm. Mm. If you find something that is working, Then I say, well, start with a very small project. So interesting to hear you, your answer. Yeah, I need to balance that position a little bit. Of course, I've been with the Research Institute. I was involved in many uh, start your AI journey projects, pilot projects with uh, various customers, right. actually. And as you said, we um, one of the recommendations we do uh, give our customers is to, you know, Find some low-hanging fruit, start with a proof of concept and learn mm. from that. And it would help yeah. you get going, build the competencies you need and so on. So it's not like you shouldn't stop doing the proof of concepts, but you should recognize and acknowledge that uh, there might be a very big step after that one, right? Okay. Yeah, you can continue. But yeah, sure. I mean, but that's, as I already said, you know, after you would be doing uh, POC and then when before I you know, as a consultant or with a team of people who would learn from me, I would, we would do, we would look at a list of potential use cases, you know, where we could apply artificial intelligence to machine learning too. And then we would have a number of discriminators. And one of the driving discriminators would be the size of the project, right? Mm. If it is this huge thing, which we all want to do, and we know it's going to take us three years, then you know that would only get one point out of ten, right? Mm -hmm. And if it was this this small thing, oh okay, and that, that has a real good feeling, it would get you know ten points. What I'm saying is like then, you know, very many times if you know the use case would have data and all the other things being equal as well, you know, the small project would be the first one to then, you know, try to work on. So yeah. I understand many argue men that machine learning is yet another piece of technology. Would you agree or is it something more than that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is of course interesting. And in the IEEE issue, issue of AI engineering, there is actually a, a, a debate in the end of the, of the issue, which is quite okay. interesting to follow where there is a point and a counterpoint by some professors mm -hmm. arguing for and against this. You can, of course, I mean, say that machine learning, it's its a technique. It simply extends the toolbox we have. It's still software, right? I mean, bits and bytes, they execute on some machine. Sure. Uh, you just need to learn how to use it properly. Well, requirements engineering is also, as a field, uh, you should focus on what the system should do and not put your requirements on how the system accomplishes that. So, and from that sense, Yes, we hear that a lot, but we claim that machine learning, it is a disruptive technology with novel intricacies, and you need to master those during mm. development and evolution of systems. So okay. my position is that, yes, we need to do a little bit more than just considering it as... as uh, I would agree to that. You know, the time that we are recording is the end of the year. The time uh, listeners, you are now listening is the beginning of the year. And just today I did a... Uh, a news update, and you may have heard that in between, which is, and you and I, Mark, is going to be talking later on also about, you know, generative technologies and how we may include them, and maybe even, you know, a word or two about uh, chat GPT. But, you know, that's, and I'm not going to say now if that's good or bad, but there's so awfully many, way too many people saying, you know, that's a technology, it's a piece coming out of whatever, let's say machine learning, artificial intelligence that's mm, uh, mm. going to be changing the world. I believe it's way too early, but we'll come to that later on. But at least yes. I would agree with you that it's something more than just a new algorithm in a range of 100 algorithms or, or whatever. It's something 
I would agree that it uh, it feels bigger than that. Yeah, so, you need to do more about that, of course. I mean, the, yeah, uh, maybe I shouldn't go into that, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it anyway. So, why then? What are the reasons you see uh, requirements engineering maybe is the main driver for maturation? Mm, mm. I need to do that. I need to say that sentence again. That was wrong. So, why? What are the reasons you see requirements engineering as a main driver for maturation? Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, now we're getting uh, to the core uh, of this uh, column we're presenting, right? So yeah, requirements engineering, it gives you a framework to structure your thinking. And this is very, very valuable. So for example, you can use goal modeling as part of your business analysis to express what you really hope to achieve using your AI. So digitalization, of course, it comes with a cost and you need to identify what kind of return on investment you're hoping to obtain us do, do you hope to decrease some processing time are you mm. seeking higher process quality do you want more predictability in the process do you want to decrease costs by automating things often it's a mix and there might be contradictions here so requirements engineering offers various ways to do trade-off analysis, for example. Prioritization is a big topic in requirements engineering. You can use more or less advanced optimization methods mm. to set meaningful targets. It gives you a language to discuss those things. And also requirements engineering, it's interdisciplinary um, uh, in its nature. Requirements engineers are good at talking to different stakeholders or good at talking to business, good at talking to engineers. And I mean, the bridge building capabilities of requirements engineering is uh, to a large extent, we claim uh, what is needed to take the next step and to support uh, industrial adoption of, uh, of many AI systems. Right. So you just mentioned optimization. Now, I've been I, we have been telling, you know, companies for the last five years, I believe, to start with optimization. Very much interested in hearing from you. So what have been, as far as you see the market, the, the machine learning applications been lately? So maybe dividing between new solutions or, you know, updating all things. Um, so I think you need to repeat the last question there because I didn't really get it. So uh, the balance between new solutions and optimizing something existing. Yeah, right. So you, you just mentioned optimization and I've been telling, you know, whoever wanted or did not want to hear it is I've always been saying like, you know, we have, you know, uh, the, the companies that had or have been doing, you know, general optimization, you know, overall efficiency, uh, effectiveness, you know, have always been looking at, you know, what is my theoretical quality? What is my theoretical throughput? And how far do I get, you know, in discrete, typically, whatever my feeling was, and my visit to Ford in Cologne was one of those, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, 50 places where I was invited to be, and not specifically for this side, but in general, you know, whatever, 80, 90% in process, a lot less than that from the theoretical. And that's why I've always been saying, and now here's a n- new way of doing things uh, on the basis of data and machine learning, finding patterns. And I've always been saying, use it to further optimize mm. uh, what you have. And my question is, is that what you have been seeing as well? Is that the one and only you know, machine learning that you have seen? Or have you also seen you know, completely new things that have nothing to do with optimization? So that was the question. So by optimization, hmm, uh, so I've had very close colleagues with the research institute that worked on classical optimization. So they were computer scientists of the old Um, kind. You know, you work with mm -hmm. uh, various optimization techniques that are not data driven in the the same way, right? So they always had to, of course, motivate their existence in this AI era. And that was very interesting because they did splendid work on, for example, train scheduling optimization and things like that. That was what they specialized in. Um, So the question was whether I've seen other things than optimization as uh, applications. Well, what about uh, computer vision? I know you have talked about computer vision Mm. quite a bit in in the podcast, right? That's something, I guess, that wouldn't 
be count as optimization in this? Well, thing? depending on how. Uh, maybe the thing is that when you hear the, the term optimization, as you just mm-hmm. explained, it's uh, it's maybe a different use case than the one that I meant. No, if if you use you know vision at the end of the line quality inspection, mm-hmm. that's in the end. It's if that was part of your, if I may use your terminology requirements engineering, maybe to say you know we need to improve our wastage. No. Uh, and we're going to use database machine learning uh, vision and, you know, we're going to improve scrap from, you know, one hour, from 10 out of 100 pieces down to one out of 100 pieces. Then, mm. you know, that's what I've been calling optimization. optimization. So, I see. So the way I used optimization I t- already a while ago uh, in this interview, I mean, I talked about optimizing the different qualities that you might want okay. to uh, improve somehow in your by using AI. So it was actually optimization, not of the, the product or process, but uh, as part of the requirements engineering activities where you have different qualities and some might contradict each other, some might mm-hmm. support each other. And then there are ways to balance those, to strike the right balance between different qualities in the requirements engineering process. So that's part of the trade-off analysis there. Now, interestingly, and maybe that brings me to the next question, of course, it's like different communities may be using the same term in a different way. So if if we talk about then, so can you maybe confirm that, you know, and you say, you know, we've, or there have been people doing requirements engineering since, if I understand correctly, the 1960s. So can you talk about, are these different communities, like in many cases always, you know, if we're going to say, you know, there's many startups today that have, you know, learned to do something with data, they provide data-based machine learning, artificial intelligence services to companies for whom this is maybe new. So have they been, are they today to silos as communities and do they need to you know to learn to to be working together rather than separated yeah i mean the silo effect is there of course uh, and it's uh, it's a good idea to look across the silos always so mm. i think the requirements engineering community also needs to do uh, a part of this i mean needs to work more with dissemination and outreach to make sure i mean the the competencies that uh, can be offered are also kind of promoted and marketed in in a good way the funny thing i think with the requirements and requirements engineering is that even if you do not do any requirements engineering there will still be requirements because mm-hmm. i mean the, the requirements they don't care if you make them uh, <laughs> visible or not i mean there will be implied needs and expectations by your end users uh, sure. so either you work with them or you uh, just do your thing and they will still be there in the background well uh, at the end your marketing colleagues are going to ask you okay colleague what what is it that you built <laughs> Hmm. What is it that I should um, should sell my customer? You know, what what is it that we have to offer, right? Yeah, so, yeah sooner or later it will pop up. <laughs> right, right. I mean, independent of what, what at the very beginning we talked about, you can build a piece of software, you know, you know, put it in the app store and see what users do with it. That's mm-hmm. probably completely completely on one side, you know, without any. You know, well, somebody needs to put maybe at least one claim onto it, right? One word for people mm-hmm. to then download it on one hand and then on the other. Maybe a way of looking at these different approaches is also to look at the different perspective from our development on one hand and operations on the other hand. Uh, yes, uh, of course. And I think that uh, many of the data scientists prefer to look at the development side and are less interested in the operations. But again, I think this is where requirements <laughs> engineers could come in and uh, and help bridging this gap. Uh, there are many gaps to bridge. And I think requirements engineers as a profession are good at uh, building bridges, so to speak. Right. I'm not sure we're talking about machine learning operations today, but you know, uh, at the end, any data scientist, maybe not in theory, although they should also learn that in theory, that they are not 
finished, you know, just providing whatever kind of wonderful model they have produced and say, here it is, you know, I'll put it in the production line. Thank you. Bye-bye. Here's my, my bill, my invoice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that, that's yeah, the, that's also that's related work, to right? the death by proof of concept thing we talked about before. I mean, oh, really? uh, okay. it starts, of, I mean, when once you have a proof of concept, I mean, there are so many new flavors of life cycle management right. to, to tackle when you have an AI based solution so it's it's non-trivial of course i mean you have yeah we're talking about software development now or systems development in which both code and data dependency must be under strict management control and it's really Mm -hmm. configuration management on steroids and there's plenty of the glue code that you know glues small pieces of code together to make all this infrastructure work and uh, new hardware probably and then you have the continuous evolution and the mlops perspective and it's it's not so easy where you have the POC, and probably it's a POC that has been you know customized for a particular low-hanging fruit and it might be hard to reach the generalizability that you wanted to have as well so yeah there are many 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 aspects here to discuss yeah. and i think requirements engineering can help to make some of those right. expectations you have explicit and that would help you share some of them with us then because you talk about opportunities for requirements engineering to contribute to six specific machine learning project pitfalls not sure i need to mention them here but you know can you talk Mm. to one three you know those that are important for you our main message here in the paper what we really push for here and try to convey is uh, the following that Requirements engineering, it provides an overall framework and a big toolbox to discuss expectations and needs related to machine learning-based systems. And uh, we know that there are variation points here uh, compared to conventional software systems. The characteristics of machine learning, it it does influence how these must be uh, managed, the requirements. But there are already available requirements engineering methods and practices of the shelf, that can be used today to help machine learning engineers uh, and also, in that sense, support reaching industry-grade AI solutions. So in the context of AI and, and ML, there are inevitable decision points during the development, right, where this structured analysis provided by requirements engineering can come uh, in handy. And um, ML engineering it's of course, full of trade-offs where engineers must strike a balance, and, and doing so with more analysis and less gut feeling can mean quite so two examples i'd like to first bring up the the one about false positives and the false negatives and the cost of these because these costs totally depend on the application right and this necessitates cost benefit analysis of various sorts and striking the right balance here must happen here in the intersection of business or domain understanding and uh, technology and and that's where requirements engineering as a practice really really thrives and comes out as it at its best. Requirements engineering is this discipline that uh, connects different stakeholders with different backgrounds. And uh, this can really turn into a vehicle for for accelerating the maturity of industrial AI. And the second one then, I think also is very applicable to to machine learning projects, is about decision quality baselines and uh, release management. So how good is good enough, this uh, ever-present question, right? So where are the major cost barriers when developing a machine learning-based systems and uh, what to strive for uh, when improving the performance? Which barriers uh, should be broken here and when should the organization and the project maybe settle for less? And the ideal quality level is perhaps uh, probably not the best quality, right? So there are tools here in requirements engineering for setting uh, quantitative targets and also empirically proven models uh, about connecting quality levels to, I mean, the actual perceived utility that the users have. And uh, yeah, these are available, free to use, and please, please do so. And uh, there are four more examples in, in the paper itself. Okay, yeah, very, it's a very big topic, I think. And what is in, so interesting, again, is that many times my brain then brings somehow all these different market segments which until lately had nothing to do with each other so up comes here now medicine you know we just talked about how you know still many people around us are under the weather we talked about you know COVID-19 and there's all these tests and then you know so our friends in medicine 
they have exactly the same right. They need to know exactly uh, from these tests how many false positives and how many false negatives they get. Actually, you know, uh, there will be regulation by, you know, at country level uh, that tests will only be allowed onto the market with certain specifics. So that's yeah. so interesting to me that where we, you know, in manufacturing, and let's say in medicine, just to make that comparison, it will be, as I say, you know, probably somebody, it will be medical people, medical domain experts, doctors together with the regulation people at the countries. In our case, if we say, you know, we need to know exactly what in our case of a production line, a false positive means and what a false negative means, uh, mm -hmm. it will be, you know, the production responsible people again, who are in charge of deciding, you know, how much product at what quality comes out of my production line right yes and medicine is a good example and an analogy here i think i mean it's also very important to not leave it only to data scientists to make those decisions in the oh, no. process i mean that's that's where requirements engineers are important to to come there and help them understand things and domain expertise is of course something you always want to have as a data scientist but i think the requirements engineers can help everyone you know speak the same language and make yeah, those expectations explicit and that will help you yeah in the end i would say whatever the person called themselves but they have to be the domain experts you know they are whatever kind of decision makers they may have had and will have in the future you know more or less data you know signs if it's only a day or a week which is they're not a data scientist who maybe has had a four years Uh, education, but it will not be the person who did the model as a service, right? It must be the person who's in charge of the factory. That's for me, that's obvious. Yeah, for everyone involved, I think it's obvious. Yes, we know that by now. Yeah, and, and that person will more and more in the future understand what uh, the data engineer, the data scientist has been doing. As you suggested, there's a couple of other Mm -hmm. um, you know, opportunities here. You talk about decision quality baseline, yes. underestimation yes. of life cycle cost. Not sure that you want to talk to one or two of them. If not, listeners can can download the article. Yeah. Decision quality baselines is a good uh, continuation here. I think mm -hmm. uh, it follows nicely um, from what we just said. I mean, this how good is good enough? This is always a tricky question. Of course, it's something that everyone wants needs to answer when developing a system and when you use machine learning to automate manual tasks uh, the performance gain over manual execution is often something you look at right and it's often mm -hmm. what you're seeking to increase so for example humans do something at 80 percent accuracy the machine learning model delivers something uh, similar with 90 percent accuracy and then it's better of course But maybe this improvement from 85 to 90%, maybe that was very, very costly. Mm -hmm. And maybe anyway, not generalizable to other cases. You had this proof of concept, but maybe it wouldn't work for another context. So then not so profitable, basically, to spend uh, all the effort there. So, But without those explicit targets, the data scientists, we claim here a little bit... Um, And provocatively maybe might overdo things and run over budgets and we've seen many budget overruns in 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 machine learning prototypes sure and here we think that i mean the functional requirements from requirements engineers we're good at setting quantitative targets in this business and right understanding how different quality levels map to uh, uh, utility levels i mean perceived utility levels how much better is it really to go from 85 to 87% because there is often not a linear relationship in the perceived nope. utility here i mean there might be another shape of that curve and yeah. there are good tools in requirements engineering to make those uh, breakpoints visible it's more like exponentially many times i believe right so um, The, the final yeah, somewhere, extra, yeah. another double cost. Yeah, I think it's going to be for those companies that, that have been used to, you know, and when I did 10 years with Intel, there was, was no thing ever that you were supposed to do without, you know, setting a quantifiable goal, right? You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everything yep. had to be, you know, quantified. Now, and that's the start, of course. And then you have to be realistic, of course. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, the domain expert, will set that goal, of course, together with 
um, based on you know whatever kind of experience of a of a data scientist. But if a domain expert knows that you know the cost from going from you know eighty seven to ninety two percent is you know out of reach, you know because that budget is not available for the next two years. Mm -hmm. You know that that's then right. Then the domain expert will set the goal maybe from you know eighty seven to ninety percent. Okay, so as we suggest, the other opportunities maybe listeners can have a look at those that want, or you know, also contact you. I'll, I'll yes. share your LinkedIn address later. So, what is it you can share with us regarding you know then combining, and that's a very interesting and important topic for me personally as well. Combining requirements engineering with model-based design, you know, for adoption of AI in digital industries. The combination of requirements engineering and various model-based approaches has oftentimes been fruitful, and there are big sub-communities in uh, the academic requirements okay. engineering field that deal with this. So requirements engineering is good at variability management and setting up common platforms then, you know, making all those variation points explicit to support reuse in various things, uh, various ways. Uh, and with the right platforms, then the modular approaches and model-based systems can work tremendously well. And again, mm -hmm. the, there is a very strong German sub-community doing, um, doing this work. I don't have any specific examples of this. This is uh, maybe not what we push the most in this column, but uh, I would be happy to share some, some references to interested yeah. uh, listeners. Just reach out to me on LinkedIn. But my interest is also moving towards the next topic then. I mean, I come out of, and that's uh, probably 30, 40 years ago, you know, that was the architectural computer edit design. That's where I actually finished mm -hmm. my degree in Delft and combining that then with a more generative AI. And I've been looking at it lately. It's not my, you know, the topic I'm active in really, but it's more like a more general uh, interest in seeing what it is that we can do with, you know, different pieces of uh, generative uh, AI and how mm. that then works with you know you were the one and again this morning when i recorded with robert the news for the end of the year which you listeners now beginning of the year may have heard already we talked about thank you very much marcus you made the reference we talked about alpha code for example Maybe it's another, mm. but that's another topic. Alpha code is a piece of software that helps as a very, maybe we want to talk about that specifically. So, but how do these new machine learning slash reinforcement learning, some of them based algorithms, call them AI or not, how, how we, will we integrate them or not with the, you know, the, the typical model-based design we, you listeners, have been doing for whatever, the last 40, 50 years? Yeah, it's such an interesting topic now, and there is so much going on in this space. I mean, 10 years ago, it was deep learning coming with, uh, you know, beating classification task after classification task. And now we see generative AI doing so many cool mm -hmm. things. And uh, I, as a software engineering researcher, of course, I'm very interested in how well it can generate source code. <laughs> and uh, as AlphaCode, you, you mentioned, and uh, this was, uh, AlphaCode was just uh, the week before we record this, published in, in Science, but the preprint has been around since February 2022. Oh, really? Oh, that long? I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, okay. Yes, the preprint was made available okay. quite okay. early, but now it's again discussed quite quite a bit. But I mean, this alpha code, it's part of a bigger movement in generative AI for code. We have, uh, of course, GitHub Copilot. I don't know if you have talked yeah, about that. Yeah, most certainly. I think most of our listeners who are active in developing, not all of our listeners will, but those that are, they will know a co-pilot as well it's old already more than a year it's been available <laughs> right i mean this yeah, is exactly. really one of the early ones yeah i, I have well, colleagues using that all the time they like it so it's uh, and now comes uh, chat gpt you know if we want to talk about that as well yes and that has been all over the place the last week so i'm on mailing lists at the university right and i can tell you it's disruptive i mean it's already solved many programming assignments in our courses on one hand but at the same time we see that 
it has been you know not allowed with certain what is the name of that the site that has you know questions on on coding stack overflow uh stack overflow right they are not allowing you know what is it? Recent, I think. <laughs> but it's so interesting that you talk you mention Stack Overflow because yeah. that has been also disruptive in in software development. Every developer now, okay, I'm exaggerating, but it's very common that you have a tab open in your browser with Stack Overflow just to see how others did things for inspiration and you know when you have specific questions. Yeah, so I expect us in the future to have a yet another tab open with generative AI to get some inspiration from uh, code generation as we go along i think this is this is the future we're seeing right for whatever your job is kind of right so if you're a co-developer and i must say that it's and maybe that was even the alpha code then if you say it has been out for a longer time is when i when i shared it on linkedin i think you know three four months ago and i said you know we cannot exclude those people and that is the people in you know this, let's say roughly also people that do the code development you know they they think at higher levels but in the end they are many times the people who write it down as well mm. we cannot exclude ourselves including myself and other people who uh, kind of part of this movement we cannot exclude ourselves we 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 put the world upside down and don't and i've always been saying that you know, every job is changing every you know every single one you know some 10 percent, some 50 some 100 percent. you know jobs mm. that go away and we cannot think that our job you know of the and oh i received a big shitstorm at that time <laughs> now this time when i shared and and you suggested it it was now official you know i haven't seen it feels more like people say okay now we've understood because what i understand that the alpha code is saying you know they did tests over 5,000 uh, software programmers, they have more than 50. And they say all the people who have, you know, shared their capabilities, they say they are in the top 25%, right? So, mm. and they say it's not just a single, you know, you know, an if-then statement or something like that. It's more like, you know, you are a coder. It's Monday morning. You sit together with your, your boss comes in and says, okay, the customer wants, and it's describing a project, I understand, at a higher level, and then still AlphaCode to be able to, you know, come up with sensible solution, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, AlphaCode both interprets the programming assignments and generates right. code. So it works in two ways. Yeah, but, but in a very impressive way. But it's, you know, for competitive programming, it's what it does. It's uh, the deep mind uh, way of working, right? Everything is a competition kind of. Uh, mm-hmm. It uh, performs very well in, in those uh, competitive programming tasks. And uh, that's uh, that's cool. But, I mean, we're not going to lose our jobs anytime soon. Oh, I, I, sh- I mean, it's not like I'm going to uh, recommend my, my daughters to study. So, I mean, don't stay away from programming because of this, because it's... Uh, <laughs> oh wow no, it's not no. uh, it's not that bad right no, I but mean, i was I think... gonna ask you exactly that i was gonna ask you exactly that because again at the moment because of chat gpt you know the creative people let's say them at least those on the artistic side of the movement and then we talk about other generative uh, mm. developments like dali and stable diffusion and mid-journey mm. you know that's where the community is really afraid they're losing their jobs and they're forbidding on platforms you know ai generated uh, art and then there's this huge discussion about what is art you know is art about yes. you know putting you know a, a week or a year or hours of work into something and something comes out or is it about the creative process so you already say yes we're not losing and that's very likely yeah. that the people who do the coding will not but their work changes very structurally or not Definitely. So yeah, Dali is something else, I think. I know you have discussed that. I listened to some of your episodes discussing that, actually. And I've used it myself the last months, actually, to illustrate some of my pieces. And I mean, I first contacted uh, various firms, you know, illustrators, human illustrators, and then I tried to do something with generative AI, and I was happy with the results. So yeah, that's that's a little bit different there. But for programmers, I think what will be really, really important, and what we definitely must teach at the university, this is um, 
the combination of good prompt engineering. So you want to be able to right. feed the AI the right information to deliver useful output. And then, of course, critical thinking in the on the other side. I mean, you get something there, but you don't want to, you know, at scale introduce software vulnerabilities or quality issues. So you must, of course, understand what you're doing. But I think this technique... Uh, and this way of working will increase our productivity in software engineering. And this is important because there is a demand for software developers. There is a, there is a shortage. And the shortage will be, it will be a bigger problem. I mean, digitalization continues and accelerates. We need more source code. And we don't have enough people to, to, to write that code. Strongly agree. And that's what we see here. Well, where I'm based in Germany, in Europe, I believe, you know, we have a lack of skilled people everywhere. And what I see very strongly is that whenever we talked about automation in a, you know, me, myself in an industrial environment, until, you know, until lately, it was always on the side, okay, how many people are going to lose their job kind of thing. And that's been swapped 180 degrees, right? Good. We don't have people. We don't have people. We, you know, we're, uh, we here in this country, you know, we're, we're thinking about where do we get qualified people from, which I think is a, that's a completely different yeah. discussion because that's... how do we get the right to get qualified people out of other countries? It's yeah. almost like uh, that's a completely different discussion. But now we say, okay, you know, automation, you know, let's look at what automation slash machine learning, artificial intelligence. I'm happy to hear that. I've been four years on the board of a lobby organization, a software lobby organization in Sweden, and the education system just cannot provide all the resources we need here. So, I mean, it's it's good that the uh, opinion then has shifted in, in Germany. Good to hear. Let's look at then how, you know, requirements engineering and the commercial side of AI solutions. What can you share with us on that topic? Yeah. I mean, requirements engineering, it's a field that thrives at interdisciplinary collaboration. I, I mentioned that before. I mean, this is what requirements engineering is about, talking to various stakeholders from business to technical experts and domain experts. So why should we not leverage this for, for data science and machine learning projects? I mean, requirements engineering, it is a bridging concept and it should become a tool then to bridge the, the still rather distant disciplines of machine learning and, uh, you know, software development or the conventional type where you use deterministic coding or business logic. Mm -hmm. That's one then. And, and the second thing is that our requirements engineering is good at mastering complex projects and it has strong historical ties to the commercial side of things. It's business is, is a natural aspect in requirements engineering. So using that to support scope definition and uh, dependency management between features and quality attributes, mm. this is what we push in, in this column. Requirements engineering is there. Let's make use of the toolbox. Okay, so then coming to a close, where are we then standing? And it's it's kind of referring to the initial little bit of discussion we had there. Where we're standing as far as AI requirements engineering is concerned, you know, in Europe uh, relative to, I mentioned before, you know, maybe the software companies, internet companies from mm. United States, China, Asia, and how is then AI requirements engineering going to change the world of industrial AI over the next, whatever, five or 10 years? Mm, mm. Just a small question. Just a small question, just a small question. Um, I'm equally invested, I would say, in two research communities. It's, it's the requirements engineering community and it's the software testing community. Okay. And the testing community has been a bit faster at acknowledging the new era of AI systems, I would say. The testing community was faster at providing various tailored testing solutions for AI. ARIA started a bit later, but now there is momentum for sure and several PhD students really focusing on this topic. The research community in uh, requirements engineering is already very international, but academically I would say that Europe is in a, in a leading position here, especially about trustworthy AI. Uh, and uh, I'm sure you have talked about the AI Act, the coming, the proposed AI Act. Sure. In, yeah. But the big tech companies, as you mentioned, they have also done very impactful work. I mean, IBM is quite transparent with their work on trusted AI. Microsoft surely do, do impactful work mm. as well. They have various quality models for different aspects of, of AI systems. And 
Some of them are rather similar to any software system, but some are uh, more important when you work with AI. For example, fairness and reliability. And yeah, I'm sure you've discussed that. Yeah, that's interesting to hear, though. I, you know, the relation to, I'm not sure when we're finally going to see the the AI Act, mm. um, you know, to be signed off, uh, finally, finally, finally signed off. Mm. And we're going to have a, you know, list of, you know, let's call it, I don't know if there are specifically called requirements list. And if you want to put your AI system, depending on at what level of, you know, making potentially uh, or being potentially a, a problem or not for consumers, you know, you will have to abide exactly by those requirements. So yeah, I, I, didn't I mean, they use the term yeah. key requirements on trustworthy AI, right? So it's, oh, there you go. There yeah, you go. It's, it's right. Yeah. And so from that perspective, Europe certainly has been, yeah, I think we were late to the market, but then, you know, based on other things we've been doing, like GDPR, you know, it, mm. it is, it seems to be important for the European Commission to have this out sooner than later. And, I, and I've always been saying, you know, and then maybe we finish off with one or two more words on exactly this topic, because mm. then if a person like myself, you know, says, yes, this is important, and I have been saying this for years because of what I was seeing, what was going to happen, and now we have, um, you know, a, an app, let's say, like ChatGPT out in the world to a huge community, and I had been mentioning Robert to say, you know, there was this group of young people and they started using it and they were completely impressed, right? And haven't s spent a single second on the idea in the words of OpenAI that sometimes ChatGPT will give, I think, quote unquote, nonsensical answers. Uh, it's the words of OpenAI, right? And these young people, they haven't been dealing with that. So, and I've been saying for that reason that it's so important that we get regulation. Uh, and mm. if you then say they use the word, the term, key requirements, key requirements. I'm very much looking forward to. Mm. And then, of course, you have the discussion to round it off to say, oh, you know, that's us again. That's again. And typically you hear it in Germany, not sure about Sweden. Oh, that's again the old German <laughs> approach. We always have to do everything, you know, completely specifically. And maybe they mean indirectly the requirements. And then they say, oh, look at these, you know, US companies. They do whatever they want to do. They put it up. And if it's wrong, they do it again. So is that is that still the world in which we live? And is that world going to change over the next couple of years this division maybe <laughs> yeah i heard someone describing it as uh, you know us they have the research china they have the the data and what do we have in europe well we have regulations so let's turn that right. into uh, into an advantage right so yeah i think we will remain quite um focused on regulations within the european union and for good reasons mm -hmm. i must say um so yes i think this is uh, not going to change in the next years uh, let's see how fast it gets approved now i mean there have been many comment letters and a lot of debate regarding oh, especially okay. i think the ai definition here it's a, that's a tough nut to crack of course i've, um, I've seen a change in in the the fine well in the last version that i've read mm. so okay they have yeah. been listening at uh, at feedback from the community yeah okay yeah. well keep our listeners uh, up to date on that one certainly next year or this year as you're as we're now listening, as you are now listening to it as well. So, Marcus, thank you very, very much. Those we, you already referred to your IEEE paper. We'll we'll put a link in the podcast notes. And listeners that want to get in contact with you, they can do that best probably at LinkedIn. Marcus Borg, Marcus with a K B O R G, Marcus. Otherwise, if you, the listeners, if you have any question, any comment, as always, please send a short email to peter at aipod.de. Uh, yeah, I'm very happy that you stayed with us so far. Looking forward to have you with us again next time, Marcus. Thank you again. See you soon. I may be visiting a Swedish friend over summer. I've been trying to visit for 10 or 20 years. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> it works time. this time. And if so, I'll, yeah. I'll certainly let you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I'm on the gateway to the rest of Sweden here in the south. So that uh, would be fun. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. There is uh, so much to say about this topic. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.